I just want to welcome those of you here in the room, those of you who are online. We know some of you will watch online before you ever step foot into this room. And I, we hope to get to know your story, and we hope to build enough trust with you to do just that. For those of you who are here as well, it's just such a privilege and honor to stand up here each week knowing the stories, knowing the different lives that are out, just, just here and how God is at work. And just also know that some of you carry some weight here as well. And I just, it's a privilege to be able to stand here and talk about God's word and also just know um, that some of you, you've got some, some hurts You've got some, some hang-ups, and you've just got some things right now that are just weighing on your life. Um, each week when we take this time, we ask God to speak to us through his word, through me. And so we also, like I said, our talkback church in some ways, the best possible sense. So we also want to hear from you. We want to know what you're processing and what you're working through. So hopefully you got one of these teaching time notes. There's a QR code on there where you can fill out a gen card. Or maybe you can also respond and write down what God is trying to say to you this morning. One of the things that I have found myself doing growing up, it was something my parents taught me. And then some of the things that I do with my kids is we like to play like silly card games. Does anybody have any like silly car game or car games like things when you're doing from place to place that you play? Uh, anybody play the ABC game like growing up where you're trying to match signs or maybe there's an I Spy? Uh, what? Popeye. Popeye. I don't even know what that one is. Oh, one head like cars. Or oh, it makes me think of like the slug bug where it's like you see you see uh, one of those old bugs and you give someone else a nice little. Uh, Tap in the shoulder. <laughs> Tap in the shoulder. Um, as I get older, some of those games have changed, and some of you may laugh at this. I, I like to see if I can get places uh, without using the GPS on my phone. It's a nice little challenge. It's like, I, like you know, sometimes you get in the car, and it's just on autopilot, and it's like, I could even know where I'm going, but I just throw my phone up there, throw it in the maps, and it's like, you can now get to home. And it's like, I know how to get home, but it's such a habit that you, just, you pull up the GPS, you just do it. So sometimes now as a little treat, I like to try to get someplace without using my phone. And I talk about it with, with the kids, and what I've, I've noticed is like that's a muscle that you have to work. Like you have to pay attention to traffic, where you're going, like like kind of remember like which way is north and which way is south because you can get turned around quickly when you're trying to like cut around traffic. And we just live in such an automated world that sometimes it's like you gotta refresh like how those muscles like work to, of navigation. I, I think of also uh, just, you know, I, when, so, when someone's like dating and they have a new relationship and they're, they're connecting and it's like they're getting to know someone, how that, that new relationship completely changes that person's schedule. They could have everything rigid and together and then it's like, nope, like all my commitments, all my life, all my schedule, I got to go now spend with this person. They'll stay up late maybe texting or the old like call on the phone and it's like hours and hours. So, so things you were accustomed to doing, the habits change. 
One of the other things I, I found myself doing again lately is just cleaning out my phone because you just download so many apps. Now, I, I have a lot of storage on my phone, but it's like, you ever notice just like swipe over a few pages and you start looking, and you're like, man, I haven't pulled up this app in months. And it's just, and you're like, should I keep it? Should I download it? Well, like, what should I do? And I found myself like clearing stuff off because the thought was, well, I can always re-download. We live in such an on-demand world where the things we like, the things we're exposed to, are right at our fingertips. And, we, and sometimes we're very grateful and appreciative of that. In other moments, it pushes back on some of the natural things like of our life and what we're accustomed to. Because when we start to listen to God and respond to him, Sometimes that level of communication, sometimes that level of response or desire for what we need isn't as quick. It isn't as on demand. Sometimes it isn't as on demand as we would like. I think about today's passage and as we prepare to talk about just one of the Ten Commandments, how they're supposed to be words of life. I found myself in such an on-demand world that I have a, more often than I care to admit, a predisposition to reducing God to a token in my pocket or an app on my phone that I can pull up when I need it, where I need it, whenever I need it. And maybe it's even something that gets slid a few pages over because I always could read down at one needed, but it's not something that I use in my everyday life. On the precipice of the promised land, Moses has retold this story of rescue to the Israelite people. And what he's preparing them for is as they've been on this long, drawn-out journey, is to remind them that they will be able to live with God, submit to his ways, and fulfill their divine identity. But they're going to enter into a land that's filled with lesser gods. That's filled with gods in, in ways of living where the tactile and the finite are going to impress upon them to such a degree that the transcendent might get forgotten about. And the way Moses wants them to view life, to prepare to enter this new place, is to think of their connection, their attachment to God as an operating system and not an app on their phone that they can pick and choose when to use. And so the second commandment Moses lists out, it says this, do not make an idol for yourself in the shape of anything, and the heavens above or on the earth below or the waters under the earth. Do not bow and worship to them and do not serve them because I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, bringing the consequences of the Father's iniquity on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing faithful love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. At an initial glance, this commandment seems pretty straightforward enough. Don't make something, don't worship, don't bow down, 
Don't do any sort of religious acts. And again, if, if we view these commands as simple as a checklist of what to do and what not to do, then we're going to miss the point. They're stepping into a story and a response of rescue. So out of this relationship with Yahweh, the God who has rescued them, who has chosen them, this is the type of response that would show the watching world that they are in fact choosing Yahweh. And so depending on your translation, it might say idols or it might say graven images. But they are not to be created. So word two, this word of life takes aim at another misstep humanity makes when relating to God. As we saw last week, Israel received their identity from God, therefore should live in response to this rescue. Said another way, word one says that other gods challenge our received identity. And word two says that finite misrepresentations of God challenge divine order our divine identity. See, the Israelites were about to head into a land where people were ascribing their worth and their ability to achieve who they were as people to images. They would depict God in finite ways, in tactile form. Generally, every ancient Near East religion had a God whose form was made by human hands. Stone, wood. They would create it and say, okay, this if, if we serve this, if we worship this God, if we, if we maybe sacrifice to it, if we feed it, if we care for it, then we will receive something in return. So very much a cause and effect. I plug in some numbers and out comes this equation. But these gods that they were worshiping and responding to were made. Sometimes these gods were stationary at a town or in a city, and other times they were pocket gods that traveled with people. Think of a rabbit's foot, or maybe a favorite crystal that people rub or look to for good luck or well wishes. Graven images were utilized by various nations to cope with the chaos of the world. See, they, they saw these as ways to reconcile the chaos, the difficulty, the struggle, and say maybe if we, if we plug in some numbers, if we worship, if we bow down, if we sacrifice to this God, then we have some semblance of control on our world. And so by appeasing this tactile image or God, they could bring order and so God gives them these 10 words of life to the Israelites as a response to rescue, to both represent himself in the world and the rightful created order. To cope with the chaos of the world differently than their neighbors. These people were chosen by God. And so how they would respond to the chaos, to the suffering, to the difficulty, needed to be markedly different than other nations. Because in doing so, they would prove that the living God of the universe was in fact Yahweh, that they were attached to a God that was prepared, who is, who is loving, who is responsive to any and every situation. They would represent 
this loving creator God to the rest of the world by their response, not creating specific images. See, the second commandment ultimately prohibits is the limiting of God to a physical form from which one derives their identity and has no connection to the true and living God. To reduce Yahweh to stone or to the image of a bird was to fundamentally mischaracterize him and therefore mischaracterize themselves. See, their attachment to God would drive their action. Their understanding of who God is and how he expressed himself would give them the capacity to respond to the chaos of their world. Give them the capacity to bear the suffering and difficulty that we all undergo. And not do so in such a way that it's crushing or overwhelming, but is actually responsive and indicative of a transcendent God who cares, who loving, who doesn't stay at a distance, but ultimately brings relationship, brings rescue for his people. See, there's a divine order that God instructed and created. I think of Psalm 8. This just comes to mind. Where, where this, the psalmist like pens how the created order was supposed to be. It says, Yahweh our Lord, how magnificent is your name throughout the earth. You have covered the heavens with your majesty because of your adversaries. You have established a stronghold from the mouths of children and nursing infants to silence the enemy and the avenger. But when I observe your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you set in place, what is man? that you remember him. What is the son of man that you look after him? You made him a little less than God and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him Lord over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all the sheep and the oxen, as well as the animals in the wild, the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea that pass through the currents of the seas. Yahweh our Lord, how magnificent is your name throughout the whole earth. See, the original created order was God, humanity, creation. But the way in which we experience our world now is creation almost controls us. I think about hurricanes, tsunamis, the, 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 just the systems of our, of our world. They're, they're controlling, they're powerful, they help sway over our lives to such a degree that sometimes we feel overwhelmed. We feel burdened, we feel crushed, and we at times can even feel helpless. And the good news is that this is not the way that God created the world. See, in the beginning, God created humanity and gave them authority to rule and reign with God on behalf of him. We'll get into this more in a moment. But what happens is, is when we re relegate God to a physical form, we're attempting to exercise control. We're trying to replace him in the divine order of things. To bound him to a time and to a place, to a location by which we ultimately settle for something that's not true of God. Therefore, we reduce ourselves in the grand scheme of things when we try to place ourselves back on top. And what happens is we perpetuate simple attitudes and actions that pollute the world in successive generations. 
See, pursuit of lesser gods, pursuit of a wrong order of things pollutes our world. It pollutes our relationships with others. See, Moses clarifies how to relate to their other gods. He says we, we should seek to destroy them, so eliminate, to, 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 to destroy them in, in Deuteronomy chapter 12, to, to rule them out, to, to get rid of them. But what he says is when we allow these gods in our minds and in our hearts and we create and craft things with our physical hands to rule over us in ways that they were not meant to rule over us, what happens is it gets passed down to subsequent generations. When we fail to order our lives around the God of rescue, we see that there are dire outcomes. He says it gets passed on to the third and fourth generations. And then there's actually a passing of blessing when obeyed. Now Israel is in a unique position here to represent God to the world. But what we see time and time again, even in our own lives, is one generation's excuse is another's excess. Okay, I bowed one time. Okay, I got the order wrong one time. Okay, I went to the Asherah pole one time. And then coincidentally, the rain fell. Well, it worked then. Maybe I should try it again. One generation's crutch to cope or manage life is another's savior. All it takes is one time for me yelling at my kids. Sweet. I brought order. I brought speed. I brought efficiency. They followed instruction. But then when they have conflict, when friends, and then they yell at them, and I wonder why. Because they're trying to do the same thing. They're trying to exercise their will and their way to bring order, efficiency, speed to the situation. They're trying to recreate the control that I exercised on them in their own relationships. See, what this principle is telling us is that it takes one time, just once, to recreate a God in some physical form or in an image, to worship it, to bow down, to ascribe our self-worth and our value to it. And it will inevitably cause pollution it will inevitably get passed down other onlookers will say maybe that's what it means to find value and worth see it's not the attachment that's bad it's misplaced attachment it's not actually the creating that's bad it's the disordered creating ultimately an attempt to create lesser gods with physical forms was an attempt for people to regain their divine authority. See, God didn't need to be depicted in a graven image because he had already created something in his image. God didn't want to be limited to a to stone or to wood. He already had something to represent him in the world. In the early pages of scripture, as I've, I briefly mentioned, God created humanity and it says he created them in their image. And he tells humans to subdue the earth and rule it with him. The reason that subdue is used in the, is because in the ancient Near East, chaos was the greatest threat. And to bring order in the midst of chaotic world, you went and subdued. I grew up on a farm. 
And when rush and bramble would grow wild, one of the things you would do is to burn it, to clear it, so that then you could mow grass, so that it could be neat and orderly. For the Israelites, they were God's representation of himself and his world. They were to exercise his will and his way in the earth to see the chaos, to see the difficulty, to see the brokenness. And actually, in the early days, before sin entered the world, to see the untamed wildness and bring about God's good work. That's why humans were given the divine job of naming animals. It's because they were to participate with God in his work in the world. And so any created image would undermine their divine identity. They would seek to serve the work of their hand rather than the God who gave them their hands. God didn't need to be depicted in a graven image. He had already created something in his image to live out his will and his way. And so when we think of taking dominion, when we think of subdue, it's not squashing an ant with your, or a bug with your shoe. The image is to cultivate, to protect. The image resounding through Scripture is that of gardening and that of shepherding. Not seeking to control or manipulate or to strong arm, but to build and to nourish, to, to care for, to, to mind the gap, so to speak, to cultivate, which involves structure, but is also responsiveness, skill, and art. See, when we are participating with God in the world under His way, when we rightfully respond to His rescue, it means we will take account of our domain and our sphere of influence. Where you work, where you live, where you play. Your home, your job, your money, and seek to bring about flourishing. And it challenges and changes. Because then you realize that you are responsible to build a good world with God. That you are seeking, maybe as a parent, to equip others in your life, specifically your kids, to give them the tools and resources to bring about flourishing. Ultimately, the task of the church is to learn how it looks like to continually respond to him, to equip each other, to build each other up, so that where we live, work, and play, we're bringing about flourishing. We are identifying false gods. We are identifying things that crush people, that limit people, and say, no, your identity is not based on a physical thing. Your life does not have meaning because you have a nice job or because you have a ton of money or because you have the right spouse. No, you have value because you were created in the image of God. You have inherent dignity and worth. We don't need to create something to achieve that. You have been given that because you exist by God, and we are to take that message to live that message and create a world where that is highlighted that is our purpose and what happens is because we're because we're human and we exist on this side of sin and the fall and we've received some of the pollution and brokenness in our world as we tend to segment work and family in different spheres See, what's amazing is originally these were all the same thing. 
It's why people who create with their hands or build something have a sense of satisfaction. It's why follow your passion is a thing. But if you only follow your passion and you cease to take responsibility, you will continue to purvey pollution of sin and selfishness. But what's amazing is the original call of work, following your passion, working with your hands, creation was a part of our divine identity. So work too was corrupted by sin. So no wonder it's not always fun. But to work hard, to work well, to create something, to cultivate something, is a beautiful and God-given thing. Amen. See, God give, as a creator, God gives us the, pass, the capacity to create because we are made in his image. But so much of our life is trying to re-exercise our, divi- our divine authority in less than divine guided ways. We create something and then let it become what we serve instead of a tool that brings about flourishing. The, invent, the inverted order of creation causes us to manufacture sacred rather than being sacred. See, the story of Scripture is about the return of the sacred, heaven to earth, properly ordered. See, the author of life gives us authority to live and work in a way out of the overflow of that identity, not in a demeaning or overpowering or overbearing way, but one that creates and cultivates a good world. Where when there are things that are crushing, when there is oppression, when there is difficulty, that we stand the gap. The way we bring order is not by might. The way we bring order is by living out our divine right. And this kills our pride and fuels our hope because we did not earn this. We receive this identity as a gift. See, out of their rescue from slavery, Israel could represent a reordered way of living to a watching world. And the reality is that despite our best efforts, we are always idle factories and do not order our life according to God's best. We needed a divine human to show us how life was properly to be lived. It says in Colossians that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. We know that Jesus was able to endure significant hardship and pain and not lose joy. And this is the case because he knew his identity, which drove action. And when we live in this way, we know that we can't ultimately control other people's response. But that doesn't mean your action is incongruent with the character. And this is necessary for a follower of Jesus. To be prepared to bear the cost in a difficult and broken world. To seek to bring about the flourishing of others. Some of you feel this cost on a daily basis. Some of you have life that, that feel a little bit out of control and a little bit of, of chaos and you, and you want things to be a little more ordered. Here is the good news that through Jesus, submitting, responding to him, 
seeking him, keeping your eyes fixed on him. You can bear that weight because you're not bearing it alone. You can absorb the cost because he absorbed it on the cross. It's through his pain and his sacrifice that gives us the capacity to love and serve without strings attached. See, Jesus creates a new humanity that God wants to create in us so that we become people in whom God's image is being restored, people who move the human project forward. And that's the beautiful picture of how the Bible actually ends. It's a renewed world where God is on his throne and his people, his family are all around him, bringing out his will and his way on a new earth. They're the ones ruling over this new world, taking it into new and uncharted territory with Jesus as healer and guide. That is the story that we're invited into. See, because of Jesus, you can step back into your divine identity. And it's important to, uh, and essential for us to have our understanding of ourselves for those of us who are followers of Jesus as redeemed. And for those of you who want to, to see order in the midst of chaos, who, who want to ex- exude some sort of like hope in the midst of chaos. This is why we respond to Jesus and we say yes to him because he gives you the internal capacity to bear the weight and respond because he is unchanging. He is not bound by rock or stone. He is not bound by a finite thing. He is able to have the wisdom. You're able to have the wisdom of God and that will travel with you into any and every situation. So how do you think about yourself? Do you think of yourself as the sum total of your past mistakes, as worthless, or or have you believed the lie that you are what you achieve? Or can you begin to step into the reality that you are first loved, created in the image of God, and as you step into that, know that you are invited to co-create in this world with God. See, and you're going to be tempted to take things that are not good for you, to internalize, to create for yourselves and say, oh, no, I actually want to serve this God because it feels good in the moment, because it coincidentally worked once. But ultimately, it will never work because it just doesn't. It will eventually fail you. And you're going to be disappointed and hurt and angry. You'll probably want to reject yourself and others because you've placed your hope and trust in something that cannot change. You're not going to be able to love those around you and who are in your presence when you create for yourself a tactile, physical idol, whatever that might be. Because inevitably, you might lose your job, your loved one might lead you, leave you, your kids might abandon you, You might get hurt and not be able to go to work. And you might be filled with fear because you're trying to run your own kingdom. But see, when you live out of response to a God-given identity, wherever you find yourself, whoever you find yourself around, you will be able to see how do I bring about flourishing in this domain of influence, in this sphere of life, in this way and what happens is we get creative for how we destroy evil and bring about human flourishing and represent god in a good way i think of 
just some creative people over the years. William Wilberforce in England, who ended chattel slavery. He saw an evil and stepped in and said, this is not right and good. There are other people throughout history who identified something and got creative. They said, we don't have to continue to do things in this way. We can live out God-honoring dignity, bringer of life in a new way. And so on this side of eternity, we do have to be aware that even our good endeavors will have unforeseen consequences. But that's why we can trust in an eternal God. We do not have to be in control. And so the place for us to start is to start where Jesus started. To serve others. Someone needs moved, we help them move. Someone needs a meal, we make a meal. Someone's car needs fixed, we fix their car. Someone's feeling a little overwhelmed with their kids, you you watch their kids. Someone just is going through a tough time and just needs to share, you can offer a listening ear. You can't always control the results, but you can bring life. I think that some of the most practical ways for us to bring life is to practice spiritual CPR and our domains of influence. To cultivate, to plant, and to reap. Cultivate, that's that word of that garden identity where we seek to nurture and care. But for us, as we try to cultivate, we need to be aware of some of the barriers that we face. See, when, with lesser gods come a temptation to chase other gods. See, some of the barriers to cultivating good and healthy human flourishing is always chasing. Some of you aren't in one place long enough to actually cultivate. You're always chasing the next, so you can never actually nurture something because cultivation takes time it's not on demand some of you there's a barrier it's chaos it's swirling around you're not quite sure where to start this is where the beautiful nature of community comes in someone who has sees the situation differently from you and maybe you take some time to process with them you you get some additional training but you trust God as you engage that while the chaos seems overwhelming you identify one thing and you start to nurture and cultivate for some of you the last barrier is it's going to be challenging to your comfort pruning is a fabulous thing to foster growth and when you prune a rose bush, sometimes you might get hit by a thorn, but it can't stop you from pruning. Sometimes the difficult work of assessing your life to say, how do I bring about flourishing here, will cause some pain, will challenge your comfort. But ultimately, if it's in response to God, and it's cultivating, breathing life into that thing, then it's got to keep you going forward. But you can't just cultivate. You also have to plant. You have to plant seeds of the good news of who God is and who you are. I like to say it this way. It's, it's the connection of the dots to your why. One of the resources that we try to equip you around here is when people ask you your motivation, you say, because of Jesus. Amen. It's because of him and his work in your life that gives you the capacity to care. 
And that's not just a word or a phrase that we want you to say, but what it does is it gives you and challenges your motivation. Am I doing things in such a way that it's connected back to him and his loving sacrifice on the cross and his victorious resurrection from the grave and the hope that he is returning? It's sharing the skills you have learned from God's word, from God's people, and living out God's way and sharing your story with others. And you got to know that not everything's going to yield results, but that can't stop us from planting. Can't stop you from trying, from sowing that seed. And I think intuitively on some level, we get, okay, it's going to take time to cultivate. We know we got to make some connections. We, we, we've got to point it back to God. Yes, Kyle, I hear you. That's good. But I think one of the most challenging areas, because it makes us even more uncomfortable, is the reaping. It's the invitation to another that says, would you like to join? Do you want to go on this journey? And the reason it's so difficult is because it actually confronts the idols in our own hearts and our lives. Because typically when we extend an invitation to others, we are going to have to give up something that we value or care for or cherish. Because the work of the reaping is the invitation and then the actual follow through to live up to that blessed ideal that comes from responding to God and who he is and what he has done in with you. Because when you call for that response, then the cycle starts over again. You've got to cultivate that response. If you want someone to respond to Jesus and say this is who he is and what he's done for you, then it's going to take time, as we talked about last week, to build an attachment to Jesus. And that doesn't happen by accident. And the work begins. See, to breathe life into our world, the people of God, through the Spirit of God, can breathe spiritual CPR into their world. My hope is that we as Generations Church can breathe life into our community, that we can push back on our on-demand world where we've got to have it now, where we set it on autopilot, where we map our way to the end result and take a little time to cultivate, to plant, and reap. Band's going to come forward. We're going to sing and we're going to respond. And what this time is, is ultimately a time for you to receive some life and some breath into your lungs. So maybe you sing. Maybe you take communion. Maybe you give. Whatever it is, this is a time for you to ask and contemplate, God, where are you calling me to go? What are you calling me to do? And simply respond appropriately. Our world is hurting. Our world is dying. And the vision is that the people of God and dwelt by the Spirit of God breathe some life into it. Let's pray. 
God, you are good. Right now we come to you. Help us to respond. Um, help us to hear from you. Fill us with your breath. Help us to focus in on Jesus and recognize that he is the one who gives us life. He is why we can do what we can do. For those who are scared or uncertain, would you bring comfort and would you instill confidence? Give them some courage right now. Thank you for your love and for your grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray.